welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. Today's episode, episode five, is entitled Preserving the Arctic, Our Last Frontier. And I just would like to read the bios of our speakers on this podcast. Dr. Katarzyna Ziske is Professor of International Relations and Contemporary History at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies in Oslo. Currently, she serves as Deputy Director since 2017 and Head of the Center of Security and was Director of the Research at IFS from 2017 to 2019. She was also a Visiting Fellow at the Center of International Security and Cooperation at Stanford University Changing Character War Center, University of Oxford, and the U.S. Naval War College. Dr. Stephen Blank is an internationally recognized expert on Russian foreign and defense policies and international relations across the former Soviet Union. He is also a leading expert on European and Asian security, including energy issues. Since 2020, he has been a senior expert for Russia at the U.S. Institute of Peace and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. From 2013 to 2020, he was a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy. I do hope you will enjoy this new episode. This episode, I'll be speaking again with Dr. Blank and his colleague about the Arctic. Now, I have to say, uh, as former president and founder of a Paris-based think tank called the International Geostrategic Maritime Observatory, we published an issue on the Arctic in 2016. And I'd just like to go back uh, and, and read a little bit of my, uh, my editorial on this subject. Little did we know that the Arctic would be so much in the news on the heels of major crises in Europe, the Middle East, and the presidential elections at that time in the United States. The geopolitical agenda is highly charged following the invasion of a sovereign nation, Ukraine, by Russia, the outright genocidal civil war in Syria, which has sent more than a million refugees to flee by any means they can to Europe, which is also reeling under the pressure of arrivals from Iraq and Afghanistan and from Africa, all moving northward to the Mediterranean Sea from Niger not to mention the geoeconomic agenda of how to create jobs and growth in a deflationary, lackluster economy with the onset of Brexit. As with our last issue of this publication, which was consecrated to migration overseas in the direction of Professor Emeritus Jean-Paul Bocasio, we will not be taking our eyes off the ball for long, but rather taking a forward-leaning look towards the North where the next battle for tremendous natural resources which have been hibernation for centuries. Again, the fight will be the access to those waterways via the Northern Passage, reducing dramatically transportation time and costs for maritime fleets, accessing massive natural resources in both energy and in fishing stocks, rare minerals and fresh water. Just think, up on the top of our globe are tons of fresh water. For those drought-stricken areas and those starving to have access to tons of fresh fish and seafood, rich in protein and calories that they so desperately need to survive, to support their families and the economy. that describe the special relationship that the Nordics have with nature and the existential territory. How do they live in this area? The poetic territory in Thomas Tanstimmer's works makes repeated references to winter, snow, white lands, forests of pines and evergreen trees, and a reindeer, which occupies a central place in the Nordic culture. The haikus, describes the natural elements, such as mountains, forests, trees, and other points where the horizon meets the sky, the sea, and the earth, giving the land an animated personality. 
feel the time is to live. In Norwegian, a vaire means to be. Vair means the weather. The road of silence is as much an introspective as geographic that leads to discover the interior of the country, which is more of an existential quest, not only of the land as a way to consider nature, but also as a way of life. Silence is an invitation to listen to nature and visit, listen to the rain, the pigeons, the nightingale, and the seagull. This poetic invitation leads us to think about life in general and to ask ourselves in existential questions. A posture of silence allows a poet to listen to nature and to connect with the world. The silence of a poet can re-enchant the world by recreating an intimate relationship between a human being and his natural environment. Thus, every living being only exists through his relationship with his surroundings and other living beings around him. Man participates equally with other living beings in nature's cycles. Although the surroundings had been traditionally thought and conceived by man, it seems here that it is a result of the union between man and nature. Living in a place, building one's territory comes through the understanding of its underpinnings, its structure, topology, topography, and the phenomena that surround it. The geographic identity of the North, as described by Christian Norbert Schulz, is not a cardinal point, but as a character and an identity. There are several characteristics of the North, such as the climate, the changing nature of the sky or the light, creating an atmosphere in the Nordic space that is by essence not static, without neatly defined geographic borders. It is not geometric but topologic, not homogeneous, but heterogeneous, which is why the Nordic existence is necessarily dynamic and is a continuous quest, not only of territory, but of spirituality in search of absolutism. All the political forces involved in the management of the area want to preserve nature, but not according to the same criteria. We have to invent together an ecocentric environmental ethic respecting not only nature, but we should not deny the predatory nature of a man and the imperative to meet his needs. The Paris Agreement put the emphasis on the fragility of the Arctic and its habitat, but let us recognize that the high north is a major growth area for the European Union, which consumes 25% of the world's energy, but only produces 3%. It is the source of 50% of EU fish production. And the North could be a hub connecting Europe and Eurasia, not only with undersea cables, which would allow businesses to grow using more effective speedy communications. And the EU has a role to play in funding Arctic research via structural funds, improving living conditions for Arctic indigenous peoples, encouraging and supporting closer cooperation between northern countries by allying themselves with Norway, which have 500,000 people living north of the Arctic Circle. Our next security challenges will be in this region as a new economic paradigm emerges from a post-Cold War era that will lead to regional powers rising outside traditional power centers in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, and Africa which will challenge the bipolar world order, each country sparring for diminishing energy, water, and food sources. There will be a move towards a polycentric governance model that may do away with the numerous weakening and diluted international fora and give way to regional power centers that will pool their resources, their peoples, to rival other competing circles as we move towards a 21st century economic model based on the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, and Industry 4.0, drones, and virtual reality, within which we are and will be increasingly cyber-connected, yet cyber-vulnerable, where a malware can shut down a city, an electrical grid, the metro network, or shut down airports and ground airplanes 
and bring our way of life to a halt. Welcome to a new conference. Today, uh, the theme of our conference is the Arctic, preserving our last frontier. I'm so pleased to be joined with Katarzyna Zisk and Dr. Stephen Blank. Dr. Katarzyna Zisk and Dr. Stephen Blank, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. I would just like to read um, and introduce you uh, to um, to our audience and read uh, the bio, uh, the bios that you sent me. A very short bio, obviously, because um, uh, for the format of this purpose. Um, let me start with Katerzyna. Kater, Dr. Katerina, Katerzyna Zisk is a professor of international relations and contemporary history at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies in Oslo, where she also serves as deputy director and head of the Center for Security Policy. Professor Zisk has worked on geopolitics in the Arctic and Russia's policies in the region on a daily basis since 2007 and published extensively on the topic over these years. Welcome, Katarzyna. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, now to Dr. Stephen Blank. Dr. Stephen Blank, I'm going to pull up a very brief bio of Dr. Blank. I'm sorry, I don't seem to have it available, but you all know Dr. Stephen Blank. He's a Russia specialist. He's a fellow at the USIP. And uh, Dr. Stephen Blank's reputation precedes him. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stephen, for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Ellen. Um, yeah, I apologize uh, for that. Uh, for that, uh, you know, little. Uh, it's okay. It's part of cancel. <laughs> I apologize. All right, so let's get into it. So uh, today we're going to be talking about, as I mentioned, preserving the Arctic, our last frontier. Now, I'd just like to do a very short introduction, taken from an article uh, taken from the Atlantic Council this week. Sun Tzu, the Chinese military strategist from the 6th century BC, who we all know so well, in his classic work, The Art of War, emphasized the importance of securing the precipitous heights before one's adversary due to the advantages or advantages elevated positions afforded a defending army. Now, there is no higher ground on Earth than the Arctic. The Arctic is rapidly changing as it experiences climate change at a rate greater than twice the global average, and polar sea ice recedes and thins. The first ice-free Arctic summer under a high emissions scenario could occur as soon as 2042. I'd like to get your take, uh, Katerzyna, uh, living where you do. These changes are resulting in increased human activity in the region as global actors explore opportunities to exploit its natural resources and strategic ge geographic locations. Now I've put together a few questions that I've sent to you both. And I'd just like to start with the first one, which is based on the excellent paper that Katarzyna, you wrote recently for the Center of Naval Studies. What war scenarios is Russia preparing for in this remote and relatively stable region? And what is driving Russia to prioritize the region and continue to inject new capabilities into all of its defense branches, expand its military infrastructure, and increase the quantity, scope, and complexity of its military exercises and training, even as economic environment has become increasingly constrained including periods of stagnation and recession since 2014. I apologize, the question is long, <laughs> but I'm sure you'll be able to answer it for us. Please. Thank you very much. Yes, well, <clears throat> I think I would start with the, with, the, with the second part of the question, which is the, why is Russia so interested in the Arctic and has put so, much, so many resources over the past more than a decade 
uh, even when, as you said, the, the economic situation has been worsening, you know, a number yes. of, there were several <clears throat> periods of stagnation, even recession, etc. And yet, and yet, uh, the expectation that Russia will pull away from the Arctic has not really, uh, this has not happened. And I think there are a number of reasons. I, what it says to us is, the first thing is that Russia has, is thinking long term uh, about the Arctic. There is a number of, of reasons for why the, the country is so interested in, in, in the region. Well, first is the geography and the fact that you sure. know, Russia covers nearly half of the Latin Circle. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course, anything, everything that happens there is of interest to Russia. Uh, yes. uh, there is the economic factor, of course, <clears throat> and the fact that already today there are over 20% of Russian GDP is generated above the Arctic Circle. Uh-huh. And there is also the expectation uh, on the part of the Russian um, authorities, rather optimistic, I would say, that the region will, uh, that the share of, of the production of the GDP in the Arctic will increase and, and significantly over the next years. And of course, the energy production and, and the opening of the sea road, the, the northern yes. sea road along the Siberian coast, is, is a part of that, that uh, hope. And so this is driving the interest, but, and of course, there is the traditional role of the Arctic in Russian military strategy. It's been there, it hasn't changed. Well, it has changed to the, in the way that it has actually, in my view, become more relevant militarily from the military strategic point of view. So on the one hand, yes, we have the traditional role of the Arctic in Russian nuclear deterrence, especially when it comes to the sea-based nuclear deterrence, although the Arctic also plays role in land-based and air-based uh, nuclear deterrence, we can come to talk about it if you if you like. Mm-hmm. So this, this is extremely important. The access to the Atlantic uh, uh, is is very important, and now the access may be opening also, you know, along the Northern Sea Route to yes. the Pacific, you know, which also may help uh, um, the Russian naval strategy, which also depends partly on moving the capital ships from one sector yes. of naval operation to the other. But also the Arctic has started playing more a, a larger <clears throat> in growing role in non-nuclear deterrence. This is also a huge topic we can we can discuss. Um, and, and the economic activity the, the, that Russia develops and wants to expand in the future also generates a number of, of new uh, tasks and missions for the Russian armed forces. So it's, it's, there is a complexity. And just one more thing I would like to mention is the fact also that uh, the Arctic is extremely important uh, to Russia, also from a symbolic point of view. Of course, it is. Um, yeah, so, so you know the the history of of the Soviet and Russian, you know, conquer of this of this extremely difficult to to develop environment is is a source of pride. It is a part of national identity, and it has been used for what is good in the in the in the. In the domestic narrative, uh, sure. in the national mobilization project. So this is also, uh, it's not the most important part, but it definitely plays a role. You know, all the ships out there, they, they, they look great on the TV screens and it's been used for what it's good uh, by, by the Russian authorities. So uh, so that's sort of the first part of your question. I don't know if you want me to go to the threat scenarios or... Let, let, let's see if Stephen wants to make some remarks too, and then we'll, we'll come back to the first part then. David? Well, I, I agree with everything Katarzyna set up because the Arctic is is, prior, is a priority for Russia precisely because of its economic, strategic, and military, and even symbolic uh, value. Uh, in, in a lot of uh, Russian culture, the Arctic is also seen as a place of spiritual regeneration by which Russia can reclaim its great power status, mm-hmm. which is an obsession in, in Russia. But to answer the second part of your question, the threats that Russia sees in terms of war is essentially a projection which uh, came naturally to them, even though the capabilities were nowhere in uh, in sight at the time, that the West would launch some sort of airstrike uh, against the Russian fleet and uh, also try to seize Russian energy platforms and Russian energy in the Arctic. Uh, From the moment that the Arctic became an important uh, object of Russian policy in 2007, when uh, Mr. Chilingado planted a flag there, uh, 
a kind of evocation of the uh, period of Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, Russian papers have been full of the belief that the West was just hungering for an attack on the Arctic to seize Russia's energy uh, and that uh, an airstrike was somehow being planned against the Arctic when this was nowhere remotely near the case and nobody in the West was interested in the Arctic. It is only actually because of Russia's own buildup and threatening behavior that the West has responded. But now we see that the Arctic for Russia, more than for anybody else, is a vital interest. And as such, I think that they have institutionalized an overreaction uh, or an expectation which is deep in the uh, hearts of the Russian leadership, given their background, that the West is coming and wants to seize their uh, natural resources. In my lectures, when I would talk about this, this sounds like the movie Dr. Strangelove, where the American general thinks the Russian is are trying to poison our water. It's the same kind of paranoia, but it has become policy. So that is what the war, the war that they think it, you know, that they have to defend against. Um, they are aware of the environmental threats, but they're not really doing much about it. And second, uh, because of the nuclear uh, forces stationed in the Kola Peninsula, which are the heart of the Russian second strike capability, naval uh, or submarine launched uh, ballistic missiles, uh, which are based over there, it is essential for Russia uh, to guard that those submarines and a lot of naval and air power is there now because having created a self-generating prophecy that the West wants to attack, they fully expect to there to be some sort of attack on those submarines and its second strike nuclear capability. So you have a reinforcing threat assessment that generates its own continuation. All right. Uh, let's go back then, Katerzyna, to the first part of the question. Um, so if we look at the war scenarios, and you mentioned this in your, your excellent article, um, what, does, what is Russia preparing for? Um, and as we go through the questions, I think there are other uh, parties involved or other interests, as Stephen rightly mentioned. What, what's going on and, and, and what's being activated? So I think Stephen already has um, mentioned some of these scenarios. Um, yes. and so the, 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 the spectrum of scenarios is rather extensive and yes. um, both uh, symmetrical, the, the threats that, that Steve has mentioned, but also a broad spectrum of asymmetrical uh, security challenges and threats which are related to the, uh, to the expected increased human activity in the region, uh, which, you know, I mean, disasters, uh, the need for search and rescue, um, terrorist attacks in the future on this crucial uh, infrastructure that Russia sure. is developing. There has been some exercises also that <clears throat> were aimed at this kind of scenarios. And yes, there is this, as Steve has mentioned, there has been this, this assessment that has basically from the, since the early 2000s, when, when the, after the turn of the millennium, we had this increased focus, uh, international attentions toward the Arctic, not necessarily uh, in terms of hard security military, but, but to this potential of the Arctic and also climate change. This kind of brings the international attention to the region, this sort of new um, wealth of resources there. And I think this has also brought the, the Russian attention to the fact that, well, yes, there is a lot of discovered and undiscovered resources in the Arctic, and and this potentially can lead you know there will be increased rivalry for energy in the future including in the arctic <clears throat> and this can actually in the russia may become an object object of a large-scale commercial and and state expansion from other from other countries it's it's very hard to for us to comprehend this but again this has been an assessment that's 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 uh, popped out on a number of occasions including in official uh, statements by the russian general staff and they expect that this rivalry for energy resources will increase by 2030. And it may lead to, to competition and potential clashes. And of course, <clears throat> I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because it does not really take into account the fact that, you know, the, 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 the push um, uh, from the international community, maybe not 
maybe not very decisive yet, but still, you know, we expect that that there will be more and more uh, <clears throat> churn into the use of renewable resources and and, and green energy, etc. But that's that's one of the um, one part of the the security threat here. And the other, as, as Steve has mentioned, also the role of the Arctic as a potential arena in case of a clash of Russia with another great power. Of course, the United States and NATO is is, is a potential, uh, it's, is, an, is an actor in that assessment. Um, it's so in if that would happen, Russia expects that the Arctic is so important, including you know the, the Russian bases, the second strike capability uh, in the European part of the Arctic, that this would be a very important target. And also that the, uh, the, the attack, massive missile attack on Russia in case of this kind of confrontation may also come from the Arctic direction. And, and that's what we've seen Russia has been preparing for. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so you know, this, there has been this this huge debate uh, over the past decade, more than that, whether what Russia is doing in the Arctic is defensive or is it offensive. And, you know, and people yeah. sort of switching depending on what part of the picture they would be looking yeah. at. Because yes, in the central, especially central and eastern parts of the Arctic, you have capabilities that are, let's say, predominantly defensively oriented. So you have, you know, early warning. Uh, system, uh, um, you know, some artilleries, you have uh, surveillance. Russia aims also at, at improving uh, surveillance over, over this region, radar, new radar station, etc. But uh, so, and, and in the eastern, uh, sorry, in the western part of the European part of the Arctic, where the bases, the northern fleet bases are, the operation area just across the border with Norway, that's where you have a lot of offensive capabilities. So I think, you know, I mean, Again, the the, the 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 spectrum of threats is pretty extensive, um, and I, lastly, I would like to mention that also uh, there is, uh, I think, the Russian exercises, the annual exercises like Zapad, the Kafkaz, sure. also show that the Arctic may play a role in case of a confrontation that not necessarily will happen in the Arctic. It's not expected primarily there, but the Arctic will be likely involved. Uh, especially the northern fleet in the west <clears throat> in case of a confrontation in between russia and another great power united states nato in other regions for instance in the baltic or in the black sea or elsewhere because of course russia would like to protect this this crucial um, military strategic area but also uh, the northern fleet and the armed forces that are deployed there may be potentially used uh, in uh, horizontal and vertical escalation management. So to pressure the enemy from another geographical location mm -hmm. and also potentially uh, threatened with use of long range precision weapons, potentially uh, dual capable. Excellent. Well, that's a very good start to our conversation. Let's move on then. I know we have a, so much to say on uh, my second question, which is what are the national policies? And I think both of you sort of touched on it just a little bit that became Russian domestic and foreign policies following Vladimir Putin's return to power as president in 2012. Please talk to us about Russia's Joint Strategic Command and its Northern Fleet, which you already put your, your finger on, Katarzyna. Do you want me to start? Yes, please. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> uh, let me start with maybe with the Northern Fleet then. Uh, yes, as we mentioned, so the Northern Fleet is, is the strongest part of the Russian Navy uh, still, uh, has the largest share of the, of the Russian, of the Russian uh, strategic submarines. Um, you know, Russia has been also trying to maintain the um, uh, sea-based nuclear deterrent in the Pacific Fleet. But if you look at the capabilities, the most modern, the strongest, uh, also a quantity of them, they are still in the West. And I, I don't see this changing anytime soon, despite the growing importance of the Asia Pacific uh, region. Yeah. Uh, so the Northern Fleet, uh, you know, it's, it's, it has a lot of, of the traditional roles, including the bastion defense, which is basically a concept developed during the Cold War, which aims to ensure the survival and freedom of action of the, of the strategic submarines protect them, the, the infrastructure, operation area, behind several layers of defenses. So what we expect is that in, in severe crisis, 
and conflict, Russia would likely aim to take control over maritime areas and other domains in parts of the Barents Sea and the Norwegian Sea, mm -hmm. uh, Northern Norwegian Sea, while while denying control to the adversary farther south, when Russia, especially beyond the Gue Gap, where Russia would be unlikely to establish control. And the, the problem of the Bastion defense is that includes maritime approaches to NATO member Norway, which is, of course, uh, a, a cause for concern. Um, yes, and so, uh, yes, Russia also, there, there is um, uh, likely an ambition to at least threaten some of the sea lines of communication in the North Atlantic. Uh, that would be crucial to, to, to US reinforcements uh, to Europe and, and this way complicate the enemy's uh, adversaries' risk calculus. Um, Yes, so briefly, before I give word to, the, to, to Steve, uh, the Joint Strategic Command North, uh, it's, it's been very, very interesting development. Uh, so it's been, it was first established in 2014 as the Joint Strategic Command North, and now it's also it's the fifth military district, which means it has become, uh, I, I think it sort of lifts the Arctic sort of on the, on the, on the military strategic agenda. Uh, it makes it more uh, independent. Uh, certainly more, impor uh, more important uh, than before. I think the reason they've done that, there are a number. Uh, one is also the need to, 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 co to, to coordinate, you know, these capacities and capabilities that are uh, scattered over several thousands of kilometers uh, uh, in, in the Arctic which also, you know, it's important for, for rapid reaction planning, etc. There is also an interesting discussion on whether uh, this was also maybe not important uh, factor, but also the fact that Russia has the um, has the uh, uh, used to uh, you know partition its annuals you know the large scale exercises in smaller parts in order to avoid you know the requirements uh, uh, that are uh, made uh, in the Vienna document, which is you yes. know um, confidence and security building measures. Uh, uh, which says, you know, on the east of the Ural Mountains, which says that one of the requirements is that international observers should be invited if more than 13,000 soldiers participate in the exercise. Yes. So, so they've tried Russia, to stay. Yeah, so what Russia has been doing, you know, basically uh, over the past decade, you know, especially Zapad and Kafkaz, they, they uh, in these, these two exercises, they were sort of saying, well, these are smaller exercises and that's why we do not need international independent international observers but of course but of course that was not the case they were much larger they were actually connected and having this additional sort of administrative division from from the western military district certainly helps i don't think it's the most important thing but it's certainly it, it's a possible factor thank you steven well the uh reasons for creating the Joint Strategic Command are exactly as Katarzyna said. Uh, they have to do with command and control, with also the Russian understanding of contemporary warfare, that it requires uh, combined and joint operations, and that therefore you need a an army uh, command center that can supervise and control all of those operations at the same time, and, and also, as she said, for rapid reaction planning. But it also has to do with the fact that since 2014, since the invasion of Crimea, the Russian military and government have believed they're on a war footing. And this is one of the hallmarks of Putin's tenure since 2012. Actually, it predates them. Uh, uh, I wrote a paper in 2009 and 10 okay. saying that we were seeing the, and other people have commented on this also, for example, British scholar Andrew Monaghan, that we see a mobilization process taking place in Russia. And mobilization means that they're in a, they see themselves as fighting a multi-dimensional war. Now, it is not a war with the West in terms of people shooting at each other with whatever kind of weapon you can imagine, but it is a war, you have information warfare and all this, and the state is therefore mobilizing, and mobilizing means optimizing your organization so that it is in a position to act quickly and expeditiously and effectively when the war breaks out and the creation of a joint strategic command is fully in line with moscow's understanding of what contemporary warfare is all about and the arctic is as katarzyna said a priority now for many reasons 
uh, not least of which because of the nuclear, but also because of the expected economic potential. Furthermore, many Western analysts who are writing about the possibility of uh, combat in the, Bal in the Baltics now believe that you cannot segregate the Arctic from the Baltic, that if there's a conflagration or some sort of uh, uh, combat or co contest in the Baltic between Moscow and NATO, well, that's what it would be, the Arctic will be brought in. And the latest exercises that Moscow has done quite recently show that there are people in Moscow thinking along the same lines. So the Arctic may play a major role in, for example, Baltic contingencies, because those will involve Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, uh, all of whom are countries with major Arctic equities. All right. Well, this leads me to my third question. And I'd just like to preface this question with a quote uh, in uh, the Atlantic uh, that Jim Danoy uh, from the Atlantic Council and Marisol Maddox wrote uh, and she's from the Wilson Center um, on an article called NATO 2020. And I'm quoting, overall, the growing military security dimension in the Arctic affairs requires NATO to urgently shore up its defense and deterrence posture in the region, lest it risk losing relevance and the ability to protect its members. NATO's recent agreement to establish operational coordination mechanisms between NATO Maritime Command, MARCOM, and the Danish Joint Arctic Command, JACO, which has responsibility for the defense of Greenland and the faraway islands, is a step in the right direction. But moving forward comprehensively will require the alliance to navigate the complex and politically sensitive interlocking relationships among existing Arctic stakeholders. To do this successfully, NATO needs a carefully planned Arctic strategy that can forge consensus among Arctic allies around specific military activities that guarantee access to the region in any circumstance. And they conclude in saying the time is now for NATO to be an Arctic actor. So this prefaces my third question and you've led nicely into it, both of you have. What are NATO's objectives in establishing an Arctic security dialogue with Russia through the NATO-Russia Council to promote transparency about NATO's actions in the Arctic and mitigate adverse reactions? Stephen, did you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, what we have to understand is that as of today, there is no organization that is devoted to discussing Arctic military issues. The Arctic Council deliberately has omitted that issue or that, those series of questions from its agenda. So there is nowhere to, no forum in which we can discuss with Moscow issues of military security in the Arctic and of military policy. Second, uh, as the quote you stated indicated, NATO now discerns a major Russian threat that is growing and has taken steps to uh, deter it. Dispatching US and other NATO forces into the uh, high north, which is the area around Norway. Yes. Uh, dispatching Marines to Norway, military cooperation with Sweden and now Finland as well, even though they're not members of NATO. And uh, NATO exercises in and around Norway and even into the Arctic in, uh, into the Barents Sea, which is the uh, waterway between Moscow, uh, between Russia and Norway. The critical part for NATO is that Russian military operation and exercises have shown that Russia is thinking very hard about sending this, its submarines and possibly its surface fleet into what is called the High North and beyond that, the Gayuk Gap, Greenland, Iceland, UK, in the North Atlantic, and then further into the Atlantic Ocean by which it can interfere with NATO communications, NATO uh, uh, maritime transport, moving of men and supplies from the United States uh, to the European continent and of course, interfere with the sea lines of, of communication. Moreover, 
that by taking up positions in the in the high north and in the North Atlantic, it could strike at NATO countries with long-range precision strike warfare capabilities. Uh, in England, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland, as, as well as Canada and the U.S. And NATO now has awoken to that threat and is moving to counter it. The, the same thing is happening in the United States, where every service, Coast Guard, Navy, Air Force, and now Army, are, divide, are coming up with an Arctic strategy and are seeking budgetary funds to build forces capable of operating in the Arctic. So although Russia may, may not like this and certainly doesn't want that to happen, Moscow's activities in Ukraine and elsewhere has triggered a reaction in the Arctic, which is exactly what Moscow was afraid of to begin with. They brought this on themselves in this kind of self-generating uh, self paranoia that I talked about. And uh, as a result, you now have a very substantial uh, dual-sided process of militarization taking place in the Arctic. And there is no forum for discussion. So therefore, the NATO-Russia Council could, if both sides are willing to use it for that purpose, mm -hmm. serve as such a forum. But that remains to be seen. All right. All right. Katerzyna. Katerzyna. All right. Oh, I can I get my myself. Back. If you switch off the microphone, it will be better. Um, so yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with what Steve has said. The, um, um, yeah, the echo is horrible. Uh, Steve, could you switch off the the mic? Um, because I think now. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, yes, so I, I agree with what Steve said. I, I think what is it's important to, to remember, and I think, you know, especially when we listen to sometimes the rhetoric from Moscow, is the fact that NATO has been there all the time in a way that, you know, four of the of the five Arctic coastal states, they are Arctic, they are, sorry, they are NATO members. Um, but yes, uh, what happens uh, across the border with Russia, and it's not only the military modernization, that was one fact, but I think especially, and Steve has mentioned that, what happened in Ukraine was, was, was a watershed moment. And, and of course, what happens in the Arctic cannot be separated of what Russia is doing in other security spaces, including in Ukraine or Syria and, and others. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we have to, and I, there has been actually an attempt, an attempt by, by academics and experts to say, you know, the Arctic is in a way, it's an exceptional security space. We have a dialogue with Russia and transparency to, to a much larger degree than in other regions. Um, let's preserve that. But I, I don't think it's possible because I don't think Russia is a different actor um, in, in Ukraine than in the Arctic. But it has to be also said that um, um, in addition to, to the deterrence part, to having the credible military presence and, and activity uh, by NATO, the uh, USA, uh, in the Arctic, which is extremely important, that's the pillar of stability. Another pillar of stability, traditionally and still maintained to a large degree, is the fact that there is a broad spectrum of regimes, uh, cooperation uh, and governance regimes in the Arctic, which do play a stabilizing role. And I think the, this is this is a unique sort of um, um, characteristic of this region uh, that that you had this both and, and the, the governance in the Arctic is quite extensive. You have regimes, international cooperation on the global level, regional level, and sub-regional level. So mm -hmm. on the global level, for instance, you have a. Uh, um, uh, international conventions as the unclosed UN convention on the law of the sea, um, a protection of, you know, conventions protecting biodiversity, maritime ecosystems, uh, international, uh, the polar code um, by the um, International Maritime Organization, which regulates um, established standards on polar shipping, which is extremely important for security. Um, regional, we have the Arctic Council. Yeah, so, I'm getting to that afterwards. <laughs> I not talk about it, but just to mention, yeah. you have this, and on the sub-regional level, you have the Barents Your Arctic Cooperation, and also forums, as you mentioned, like the uh, Arctic Security Forces Roundtable, for instance. And and this is this fabric of, of, of this governance and cooperation regimes, when you try to combine um, you know, again, credible deterrence and the credible deterrence we have seen, it, it had to be beefed up 
you know, in in line with what happened across the border and in general yes. with, in, with Russia. It's, I mean, in order to make it credible, that was a must, and I think it's still very. But 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 the transparency uh, of that military activity. The, the, it, there is a, you know, traditionally believe that this contributes to making the region stable, and that's why we have also this kind of force. Uh, Russia does not participate uh, in now because uh, has been disinvited because of Ukraine. Yeah. Yes, but um, but still there are there are there are forms of communication in order to avoid sure. miscommunication, misperceptions, and potential you know inadvertent escalation in the region. I have to I have to ask both of you. Do you think and both of you touched on this subject? Do you think that either Sweden or Finland will join NATO? <laughs> well. I think it's a very difficult uh, question. Well, you know, I mean, the discussion has been going on. Um, I don't think it's still realistic for all the reasons that has been that that have been in place for 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 um, um, many years. They are very different for Finland, different for for Sweden. Uh, but you know, but at the same time, the integration of Sweden and Finland with with NATO. Uh, but also um, international cooperation with the other Nordic countries is very at a very high level. So um, I think that's that's a very positive thing. Um, I, I I do not see. I mean, again, the discussion comes, you know, in waves. I I think, for instance, just to put to give the, the example of Sweden, uh, the higher threat from Russia, the actually less willingness of the of the broader. Um, um, Swedish society to join NATO because that means you know basically higher higher potential that that Sweden would be actually involved with something very problematic. That that's been so it's of course it's much more complicated, more nuanced than but that's an example of what we've seen over the years. Stephen, you want to unmute? Unmute. Stephen, unmute. Yeah, uh, Katarzyna is uh, absolutely correct here. I mean, uh, the discussion about Sweden joining NATO, I think, has gone on all my life. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm still asking the question. <laughs> yeah, well, I, no, I, I, I was around at the founding. Uh, but uh, the reasons why Sweden and Finland are not in NATO have been and are still different. And uh, there is no real concerted effort by NATO to get them to join. I, there, I mean, there are people in NATO who would like it very much. It would, it would be very easy to take Finland and Sweden into NATO as well. But there are uh, counter arguments that have considerable merit against doing that. And as Katarzyna said, precisely because Sweden and Finland are so well integrated into their region and are becoming more and more integrated because they have a increasing threat perception from Russia. Understand that we just even from the a geographic popular, point of view. The popular uh, drivers in the population, that is uh, society driving this, might, if Russian behavior gets appreciably worse, lead Sweden uh, and or Finland into NATO because that's the only way to deal with the Russian threat at that point. But uh, right now, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. It got a tremendous boost from what Russia has done in Ukraine and Russia's behavior in the last seven years. And, it's, and this week is the seventh anniversary of uh, the invasion of the Crimea, uh, of the uh, Russian behavior globally, not just Ukraine. Sure. All if, right. If years, we'll see a trend uh, within Swedish and or Finnish society for support of NATO. All right. Well, let's let's move on because the time is flying by. This Pat is such a wonderful discussion. I'm really enjoying it. I hope our audience is too. What can the Arctic Council's role, so I'm going to the Arctic Council and Katerzyna just wanted to touch on it very briefly. What can the Arctic Council's roles and objectives in keeping the Arctic peaceful and preserved as our last frontier, title of our, our, our talk today. In its vision, it states that, and I quote, at the heart of the Council's cooperation efforts lies peace and stability in the region. In this vision statement, a document was developed after the first round of eight successive chairmanships of the Council in 2013. The Arctic states together with the permanent participants stated 
that, and I quote, there is no problem that we cannot solve together through our cooperative relationships on the basis of existing international law and goodwill. Katerzyna, what can you tell me about, is this a forum that is useful, as you mentioned earlier, the Arctic Council, is this an area where there can be some cooperation given you know, a lot of move towards, as you were mentioning also, renewables, uh, the greening of the economy, uh, new energy sources, for example, is hydrogen. Um, I'd like your, your comments on that as well, please. So, I mean, absolutely. I think the Arctic Council is a very, very important contributor to, to making the, the region stable and, and contributes to, to maintain the cooperative part of, of the Arctic relationships. So it, it provides a very important practical, like legally binding uh, agreements um, between these various uh, various stakeholders. For instance, on maritime search and rescue uh, in the region, which is extremely important, especially as the region opens up, yes. uh, not only to, to economic but also to tourism. Um, this, is a, this has been a huge topic, and 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 again, the um, uh, the Arctic Council has has contributed uh, here in this area. Uh, marine, marine oil pollution, which which again is likely to be a growing problem in the region. Yes. Preparedness, response, you know, I mean, all kinds of um, disaster relief, um, sure. human assistance, but also the scientific cooperation. And it, it is important for what it is. I mean, like developing, you know, better knowledge, uh, coordinating uh, is, is important. But I think, again, we should see the Arctic as a part of this yes. fabric of this multi-layered governance regime uh, which in itself uh, is, is plays a stabilizing role provides a forum for these various actors to meet and talk even if they are not not supposed to talk about you know security and hard security and military issues it is still sure. a very important part of of the of the of the uh, of the, the pillar of stability i would say of course thank you katelgina steven a word on the arctic council well, again, uh, we're in agreement. The Arctic Council plays an important role in stabilizing the Arctic and helping the members and the observers create regimes and forums for uh, monitoring each other, uh, good behavior in the Arctic, regulate commerce, maritime traffic, uh, non-military operations, and so on. And it is part of a broader network, uh, Katarzyna, in an earlier segment, listed all the uh, fora that are dealing with the audit. The problem is it has no interest up until now in discussing military affairs. And if, as most people think, if a war broke out, it would not break out in the Arctic, but the Arctic would be pulled into this. It is not in the position to do much about that. So. While the Arctic Council is very important in preserving a certain kind of atmosphere and a collegiality, uh, some writers even call it a club, and it is a place where Russia is recognized as a great Arctic power. It is not enough on its own, and the regimes we now have in the in the Arctic, uh, the other organizations, are also not enough because the tensions in East-West relations are not generated so much by the Arctic. What's happening in the Arctic is a reflection of what's been happening elsewhere. And, sure. that, and that they are unable to deal with. So the real need is, whether it's the NATO-Russia Council or some other organization, is an organization that can sit down and bring all the Arctic stakeholders together and talk about, quote, hard security, unquote, issues in order to preserve stability and do that alongside of the non-military discussions that take place in these other groups. Indeed. Well, this leads us to our last question. Then I have, of course, a surprise question at the end, but I know you're already ready for it. So the last question is, of course, and I'm sure both of you have something to say on this, what is China's role as a near Arctic state? And what are its ambitions with its polar silk road, Katarzyna? Well, the ambitions are significant, I would say. I think what is interesting with China is that similarly to Russia, China has taken this long-term uh, approach to the Arctic, uh, to the Arctic development, expanding uh, Chinese political, diplomatic, scientific, and economic presence. And, and I think the key objectives for China uh, and Chinese Arctic policy is, is 
primarily not to be left behind when it comes to, to the governance uh, of the region, but also economic development. You know, having an access to this uh, resource-rich region, and of course, it's energy, it's it's the uh, new uh, new opening, uh, polar uh, shipping, maritime shipping routes, but also fish. Uh, and other minerals matters. Uh, it's 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 uh, the Arctic is extremely wealthy in this respect. So China wants to make sure they do have an access. Um, and I think you know there is a lot of discussion about China and, and strategic competition in the Arctic. I think to date, what we've seen is that China has been quite uh, responsible and and in generally quiet and cooperative. We've seen you know in terms of uh, polar the polar um, uh, code, um, also the agreement on the fisheries in the high Arctic seas, and uh, rarely posed a confrontational sort of posture when it comes to when when it came to negotiations. Um, and I think um, China understands the dynamic very well and and how scary China appears. But nonetheless, I think there is absolutely a potential, and, and we've seen how it played with the with the previous uh, U.S. administration, Trump, uh, that that the increased role and activity of China in the Arctic is likely to increase to come to contribute to potential raise of tensions uh, in the region, despite you know China sort of behaving extremely carefully in the region, and. Um, so, uh, of course, the statements by Trump and by Pompeo in the past uh, couple of years have showed how it may play out. You know, like um, as Steve has mentioned, the strategic documents that, that the U.S. has produced about the Arctic, including the, the U.S. Navy this year produced a, a document where they talk about China in the Arctic uh, as uh, in terms of strategic competition and the need for, from the United States to be able to compete with China and Russia in the Arctic on a daily basis in the Arctic as well. So, so I think this, this, um, this is not going to go away. Uh, it will be very interesting to see, of course, how the new Biden administration will be handling these issues. But I think there is, you know, the logically it would be to think that if China is going to invest more and more, you know, they are heavily invested in Yamal, they are the largest user of the of the Northern Sea Road, yes. um, that this may follow, be followed by some form of need for, you know, support, such rescue security. Uh, you know, they are developing uh, capacities to be able to operate independently yes. uh, in the Arctic, the, you know, the, the icebergers. Um, yes. Yes. So I think there is absolutely a potential for that. Um, how this will play out, what we will see. I think China understands very well Russian sensitivities as well. Russia is a, yes. a, a you know, a gatekeeper when it comes to, to China in the region. But, but I mean, we see that there is definitely a potential to move in, in into this direction. You know, all kinds of dual capabilities that, that China is developing in terms of science. And as I mentioned, you know, the uh, ships and, and 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 expertise that, that China is developing. Uh, I think this, this is going to be something that, uh, you know, the United States, other countries, and certainly I think Russia are going to follow very closely. Thank you so much. Stephen. Well, uh, first of all, for anybody who's interested in looking at what China's been doing here, uh, there's an outstanding book by Anne Brady about China as a polar power, or okay. China as an Arctic power, but Anne-Marie Brady. Okay. Uh, and I agree with her, uh, and China wants ultimately to be one of the powers that writes the rules as to what goes on in the Arctic. China's, I mean, the near Arctic is an attempt to justify China's uh, interest in doing this. Uh, as, as Secretary Pompeo said, and he got a lot of flack for this, but he's right, there's no such thing as a near Arctic state. Uh, you know, Mexico is a near Arctic state. If you want to. <laughs> Uh, but China wants, because the commercial opportunities are so great, and because of the environmental impact that climate change in the Arctic has for China, and for other Asian players as well, okay. India, Singapore, oh, Japan, South Korea, mm -hmm. uh, they've all gotten involved in the Arctic for those two reasons mainly. China's interest as well is strategic. They've uh, they want the Arctic, or they think that the Arctic might become the main venue of intercontinental trade. And uh, just as Columbus was looking for the Northwest Passage to China, right. uh, they're looking for a Northwest Passage to Europe. And they okay. think the Northern Sea Route might be it. Mm -hmm. 
and therefore they want to be one of the players who writes the rules as to what goes on in the Northern Sea. Route. But they have also sent their submarines into the North Pacific, uh, which is certainly what got the U.S. Navy's attention, mm-hmm. uh, and Japan's, and South Korea. Mm-hmm. They are also uh, dramatically expanding their capacities to operate autonomously in the Arctic. They have bought into Russian energy equities, most plainly the Yamal pipeline. And while they have been, as Katarzyna said, extremely careful, this has not stopped other states from suspecting them. And I think to some degree correctly of wanting to play a major role in the Arctic and seeing the Arctic as a strategic base because they are project, they are doing the things that you would do if you wanted to project power in its multiple forms into the Arctic, just as we see this happening, completely different theater in the Indian Ocean. Uh, as a result, there's a, certainly in, in, in Washington, there's an enormous amount of suspicion of what China is up to in the Arctic, and that's not going away. All right, well, I'll finish up with my last question. So of course, and Katerzyna sort of touched on it, so I'll have to get just a very brief take if you would, we're almost out of time. Um, how do you think the Biden administration will, um, you know, how, what will its position be? How will it uh, be going forward? Will it continue the Trump administration's policy in the Arctic, Katerzyna, uh, and then and then to Stephen? Well, that's that's a, well, yeah, I don't... a question. I, uh, I would say, I would expect a very different rhetoric I meant very different. I, I would expect probably less um, contentious, less uh, aggressive rhetoric uh, in terms of perhaps return to diplomacy. I think uh, you know there is a, a very good understanding that there is a need for the United States to operate in the Arctic. I mean, we've seen that in a number of, doc- of documents since basically um, uh, early 2010s, and you know the, the sort of sense of. Um, urgency to strengthen the U.S. presence there in a smart way um, sure. because also it's, there is not necessarily resources, you know, for building polar capabilities. Uh, like <laughs> to mentioned, you know, uh, deploying uh, uh, Marines, for instance, uh, participating in military exercises, not least in Norway. Uh, there is much more naval presence, not only submarines, but also surface naval, naval presence, especially in the past two years. They have been operating there much more frequently. U.S. Um, bombers has landed, landed in Norway, four of them, I think, uh, yesterday uh, for another exercise. Um, so, so I think that is not necessarily going to change because there is a need for a more credible military presence. But again, I think that there is also better understanding that than the, in the Trump administration of this another, you know, this another pillar of the of the regional stability yes. I talked about, which you have to sort of combine. It. To what extent do you really want to be unpredictable? To what extent, you know, how much do you want to? Um, you know, uh, fuel the 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 the, the, um, the sense of insecurity which has been there all the time, and I think we don't have to do a lot. But uh, <laughs> I think um, I would I would primarily expect a change in the terms of rhetoric and diplomacy uh, in the region, and I do hope that that the the military part, uh, uh, the, the cooperation, you know, military exercise, knowing the region, uh, is, is going to continue. Thank you so much, Stephen. Well, uh, likewise, I, uh, first of all, I expect much more cooperation uh, with NATO allies. Uh, Canada, UK, Norway, Denmark, of course, Sweden and Finland uh, are not allies in the formal sense, but they will be also involved in this. Uh, the development of credible military capability for NATO, or the attempt to do that, will continue. The real problem, and Katarzyna talked about it, is money. Uh, even though all the services are now uh, incorporating the Arctic into their strategy, I don't know that the funding is available to build the kind of uh, ramified Arctic across-the-board military capability or joint military capabilities uh, that we need there. The Arctic is not nearly as vital to the U.S. as it is to Russia. Uh, It's going to need a lot of help from Canada, and it's, it's not clear that we're going to get that help. From Canada, even though uh, Canada is an, a neighbor and an ally, uh, but we are going to tone down the rhetoric, 
do what we can to build up a more credible military presence. And I expect in the Pacific that we're going to have discussions with Japan and South Korea uh, as well. Uh, they are very interested in the Arctic for the same reasons China is commercially and environmentally. And if they see a Chinese military threat uh, that would outflank them geographically in the Arctic, they will immediately start talking to each other in the United States about that. So that's what I would expect to see in the next four years regarding both the European side of the Arctic and the Asiatic side of the Arctic. Now, with regard to Russia, I do not see cooperation in, uh, in the Arctic as likely, except you know, in the Arctic Council, which the United States will try to uh, use for that purpose. The chairman of the Arctic Council for the next two years is Russia. So it'll be interesting to see what Moscow does here uh, if it wants to keep the Arctic as a zone of peace. That's what it said it wants. But I don't really expect a lot of U.S.-Russian cooperation outside of the council. And on uh, defense issues, it is likely to be uh, a modification, but not a course, corre a course correction, but not a new direction uh, from what we saw under Trump. All right. Well, that ends our conference today. Thank you so much, Katerjina and Stephen, for joining us. Uh, it was my pleasure to host you today. And uh, this conference will be available on Taga's website and then later on this week as a podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a most interesting discussion and I hope we'll have the occasion to have a new discussion about the Arctic. Thank you again to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. And